You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. On today's episode, we answer the question, what happens when a group of libertarians take over a town with the intention of setting up a libertarian paradise? Spoiler, bears start attacking people. Our guest is Matthew Hongel Tetling, who will be talking about his recent book, A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. We will be getting to that interview in just a moment after our current events section. So for the current events section today, we're going to talk about a few different pieces of news related to Russia. Yes, so the first thing of significance that we got in the news in the last couple of weeks was on April 15th, and finally we got really proof positive confirmation that the Putin government was colluding with the uh, Trumpites in the 2016 election. You know, this was known, but it hadn't been said by the U.S. government for the obvious reason that you-know-who was president until recently. But the U.S. Treasury finally came out and said that Konstantin Kalimnik was a known Russian intelligence services agent and that he provided the Russian intelligence services with sensitive information on polling and campaign strategy. And he got that from Paul Manafort, who was the campaign manager for Donald Trump's campaign. So Manafort provided the information, gave it to Kalimnik, and he passed it on to his superiors in Russian intelligence. This is something that, you know, like everybody knew it, but it was never officially confirmed. It was not in the Mueller report. The Mueller report said that Kalimnik had received information from Manafort, but they didn't say, okay, here's what he did with it. Uh, and then the Senate Intelligence Committee said, well, there may have been coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia about this, but they couldn't establish it with, with certainty. So now we get, okay, this happened. So all, all of this stuff about, oh, no one proved collusion and collusion was fake news and blah, 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 blah. Let, let's put paid to all of that and let the people who poo-pooed all of this come and, and say they're sorry for, and we, we you know we, we got to make sure this doesn't happen again and, and when you're talking about people who are poo-pooing the russian invest investigation saying that collusion was a hoax you're not talking just about the trump orbit but you're also talking about people on the so-called left who were claiming this was all a bunch of crap and it was all distraction from the failures of the democratic party and yeah were uh, attacking rachel maddow and saying this was all just liberal hysteria, right? Right. Like our good friend Glenn Greenwald, for instance. Uh, and doing some research for this segment, just saw the latest uh, interview with him on Sputnik, which is a propaganda arm of the Putin government, basically. And he was still saying, you know, the same thing about the witch hunt. It's all about finding some scapegoats for the fact that Donald Trump won an electoral college victory in 2016, that kind of line. You know, he's still gonna see. He's still gonna say that that stuff, come hell or high water. You know, he's really in the pocket of people like Tucker Carlson and the the people who interviewed him, Sputnik. You know, he's he's in their pocket, and I think everybody knows that. But then there are tens and hundreds and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people who walked off that pier. I mean, can they walk back? I, th I think it really is high time. For, for them to give up that stuff. So we're also going to talk about some other recent events uh, related to Russia. Namely, um, Putin has been engaged in a lot of saber rattling on the Ukraine border, amassing a uh, large amount of troops there. Uh, there was also the jailing of Alexei Navalny, um, who despite a mass movement um, in support of his anti-corruption efforts, um, had to go on a hunger strike while in jail to protest um, his inability to get medical attention. And uh, Putin appears in the past few days to have backed down. He withdrew the troops from the border. He is allowing Navalny to get uh, medical attention. 
And, you know, there was a pro Navalny protest, dozens of protests all throughout Russia, and in contrast to the recent past where the security forces, cops, whoever, came down really, really hard on the protesters, this time they didn't. So it looks like Putin is backing down, at least for the moment, which is very, very good news for the people of, of, of Russia to give them some space to struggle and, and, and for us because it weakens this anti-democratic, what, I, I, all I can do is call collusion of, of, of the, the, the far right in this country and the, and the Putin government. Some of the reporting I've read about the um, Russian troops building up on the Ukraine border, it was depicted as um, like political theater that was kind of an empty threat. And so when he pulled the troops away, people were like, yeah, see, he wasn't really planning to do anything. But you, re- you really are making it sound like it was a real threat, and then he backed down. I don't know. I mean, you know, that's the way these things usually work, is they put troops on the border, and it's a show of strength, and it's a show of force. It really is not the issue whether they were planning at this moment to attack. Putting the troops on the border is itself an act of aggression, and having to withdraw is a real show of weakness. I mean, that's the way these things always happen. So I know the line that this is all just theater, but it's not just theater. I mean, when, when think of it, he, he amasses, you know, 100,000, 150,000 troops on the border, engages in saber rattling, and then he says, okay, well, I'm going to withdraw them, but you better not cross uh, our red lines. How does that look? It looks like it's a lot of empty rhetoric and hot air after he was basically compelled by whatever set of circumstances to withdraw. And coming at the same time that he's letting, finally letting Navalny get some medical attention, and coming at the same time that he's easing up on pressure against the the anti-corruption movement, this does not look like somebody who's in a very strong position. Way back when, when Navalny was put on trial a few months ago, he said they're imprisoning one person himself to frighten millions. Uh, This isn't a demonstration of strength, it's a show of weakness. So I I think that's interesting. You could already view the, you know, trial of Navalny, the imprisonment of Navalny, first as not strength on Putin's part. I mean, he's going to rather extraordinary, extraordinary lengths to go after one person and make him a symbol and kind of like a martyr, even if he's not dead, that's already really a demonstration of weakness. I think Devonny got that right. And the more important thing is that there are millions. You know, he says they're imprisoning one person to frighten millions. There's millions of people in in Russia who, who are opposed to Putin. And, you know, he can clamp down, maybe he can, you know, suppress them and so forth. The Iranian regime has been doing that for, 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 for decades, but I don't think he's sitting pretty. And a lot of, you know, a lot of this has to do with the, the state of Russia's economy. You know, it's not what it once was. Uh, it's very heavily dependent on uh, oil, on natural gas, and because it's not then really a diversified, balanced economy, and it's dependent on extraction, it's very, very subject to the ups and downs of the world market. And what happens to the world market for energy last year with the pandemic, demand goes through the floor, and the, the, the Russian economy goes into a, a, a sharp decline. The economy contracted by 4% last year. You know, and with all of this, you, you've got like the, the country's losing population, and there's a brain drain, and I mean, basically, for 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 most people in in Russia, from the statistics I've I've been able to 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 get hold of, the economy has actually been pretty much in decline for the last uh, seven eight years, uh, with real income down by about ten percent. There's a ton of corruption. The, the the whole system is basically corruption, oligarchs, payoffs, bribes, etc. So it, it doesn't look like any, any kind of strong, stable situation. And, you know, what Putin is, is, is trying to do, 
seems to be through some regional imperialist influence to be able to keep his economy going that way, you know, by siphoning off from neighboring countries that they basically control. I think that's the that's the idea. And, you know, if they can get the sanctions lifted, that, that would help a lot, too. Well, that's about all the time we have for this current event section. Up next, our discussion about libertarians and bears. Once upon a time, a group of libertarians got together and hatched the Free Town Project, a plan to take over an American town and completely eliminate its government. In 2004, they set their sights on Grafton, New Hampshire, a barely populated settlement with one paved road. When they descended on Grafton, public funding for pretty much everything shrank. The fire department, the library, the schoolhouse, state and federal laws became meek suggestions, scarcely heard in the town's thick wilderness. The anything-goes atmosphere soon caught the attention of Grafton's neighbors, the Bears. Freedom-loving citizens ignored hunting laws and regulations on food disposal. They built a tent city in an effort to get off the grid. The Bears smelled food and opportunity. And that is the dust jacket description of a book called A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear by Matt Hongold-Tetling, who was also our guest on today's Radio Free Humanity. Matt Hongoltz Hetlings, uh, he's a freelance journalist. He specializes in narrative features and investigative reporting. He's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He's won a George Polk Award. The Maine Press Association voted him Journalist of the Year. His work has appeared in Foreign Policy, USA Today, Popular Science, uh, and elsewhere. And he lives in Vermont, not far from beautiful downtown Grafton, New Hampshire. And we're mentioning Grafton, New Hampshire, because that's where his book uh, takes place. Welcome, Matt. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much for uh, having me on the show. So, Matt, your book is about the saga of a libertarian invasion of Grafton, New Hampshire, that began in the early 2000s and went up till recently. Uh, you know, before this, Grafton has seen better days, and then these libertarians descend upon the city of Grafton. Why did they target this town, and what what were their goals? What were they trying to accomplish, and how well do you think they succeeded? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a a really interesting story. So basically, uh, kind of like in the the early internet days, the libertarians uh, nationally were keeping in touch largely through message boards, and this idea kind of came out that hey, you know, we don't really have a libertarian country or a state to call our own. What if we could really form our own community, what we'll call the free town, America's first free town. And we will use that as kind of like an example to show the world uh, that libertarian principles, when put into practice, uh, really do work. Yeah, you know, they, they thought this would be kind of like this, this shining jewel to, to show everybody and hopefully spur uh, imitators and kind of spread the libertarian doctrine in that way. Um, and so they didn't know exactly where they were going to do this. Um, New Hampshire seemed immediately attractive because it's got a favorable tax situation and because, you know, seatbelts aren't mandatory uh, in Grafton um, and uh, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and so no income tax. Right, right, right. Yes, yes. The live free or die state. Right. And so. Uh, right away, New Hampshire was pretty high on their list of places to consider. They they uh, sent out a um, like a, a a scouting party to kind of like check out a dozen different towns or two dozen different towns in the state. And one of the things that was appealing about Grafton is that it actually, as I describe in the book, has this really deep history of anti-tax, anti-governmental sentiment dating way back to like the, the 1700s when they actually voted to secede from the newly formed United States. They, they wanted to, to get away and instead uh, go join Vermont, which at that time was an independent and importantly tax-free republic. So, you know, Grafton, Grafton just had the, the right mojo, I suppose. And, and maybe, hopefully we're not jumping the gun here, but in short, how well did their project succeed? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, um, not well, I would say. Um, <laughs> you know, from a uh, well, I, I, I suppose it, just, it depends on whose yardstick you want to use. Uh, they were very successful in having an enormous impact on the town's uh, culture and on its uh, regulations and budget. You know, they, they 
showed up in in numbers that were not enormous. They didn't constitute a majority of the town, which started with a population of about a thousand. But they had enough people who were active enough and, and aggressive enough that they were able to sell a lot of their ideas to the kind of more traditional conservatives uh, that were living in the town. You know, some of their most outlandish ideas didn't take off really. Uh, but they really had a lot of success in changing Grafton into something that was uh, certainly closer to a libertarian utopia uh, than any other town in New Hampshire. And they will tell you that uh, under their influence, Grafton became uh, the freest town in the United States. You know, is Grafton a town that they still is considered a success by their standards? One of the kind of interesting thing about libertarians is that even though they, they coalesce around this idea of individual freedom, it's a very diverse group. You know, they're, they're kind of like notoriously don't boss me uh, to type people, right? And so um, to, to say that there's a consensus on uh, the project's successes or failures um, is pretty difficult. But that being said, yeah, a lot of them would would say, yeah, you know, we we, uh, we did something important here, but most libertarians, particularly those that are plugged in to the uh, be engaged politically on other levels in the region, most of them kind of hold gr- the Grafton project at arm's length and, and say, you know, that, that, was, uh, that was something that's not what we are and what we represent. And so we'd like to not be held accountable for for the negative consequences that unfolded in Grafton. So it's it was an experiment, and the experiment ha, has ended. It's, there's not still a strong libertarian presence, uh, if I understand correctly, and the people in the town haven't taken the libertarian ways of doing things on board. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, that that's that's correct. In in some respects, yeah, you know, like, like the um, after about twelve years, uh, the the libertarians all left for reasons that I suspect we'll get into, but like this whole idea of like fiscal conservatism to the point of pain, you know, the, this whole idea of like uh, cutting budgets, particularly at the local level, uh, is still really really rampant in in the town of Grafton. And, you know, I check in on them every once in a while just to kind of see how the town is doing and to see if um, they would kind of rebound or, or, you know, uh, if the pendulum would swing the other way and that they would raise taxes excessively. But in fact, what I I find is that the the town has actually cut its budget even further uh, at at their last two annual cycles. And so that spirit of cut off our, our ears and let's see how bad the bleeding gets uh, that, that still seems to be very, very much uh, uh, alive in this town. And I could, uh, I could talk in a little more detail, if you like, about what some of the changes that they, they wrought on the town were and what the impacts of those were. Yeah, and in particular with respect to the social services, that, that would be interesting because that seems to be a big issue, you know, to deregulate, to privatize, to take things away from you know, the state, even if the state is not a state, but a a locality. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So basically what they did was they they challenged every expenditure of tax dollars at the local level. And local municipalities, particularly in a small rural town in, in New Hampshire, they don't tend to, they don't tend to comprise what we think of as the kind of like a safety net, you know, the, the kind of big traditional social service uh, expenditures like, you know, support for schooling for kids with, with particular problems or financial support for the indigent, that sort of thing. The town doesn't play a huge role in those sorts of functions, but ironically, like everything that the town does, because the, the town is so disconnected, becomes its own sort of social service. So the very basic protections that that we think of uh, in a more urban environment as being something that's kind of more taken for granted, like the condition of the streets and the roads, fire protection, police protection, those sorts of services that are just so very basic. That is what a township controls in rural New Hampshire. And those are the services that came under attack. And are those all funded with property taxes? 
Yeah, it's it's typically property taxes are the thing that people get all up in arms about. Every town meeting, uh, once a year, they get together and they approve a budget. And that budget is basically diced up, spread out over the, the property value of the town, and then everybody pays their share based on, on what that tax-funded budget is. And some of the departments will also receive some sort of other funding from the state, um, but that's often a function of how well they're leveraging their local dollars. Um, so, you know, if, if you're a, a very ambitious town, you might be able to, you know, come up with a police program that's going to tie you into, say, state funding for traffic control, right? And, and then the, the state will, will throw some resources your way to help you tamp down drunk driving on New Year's Eve or, or something. But uh, yeah, mostly what we're talking about are local property taxes. Right. So how much when they, they came in, they invade Grafton, how much did the, the Freetowners, I guess you call them, how much did they slash uh, social service spending? Uh, and, and what were the consequences of that? Yes. So basically, you know, they, they challenge just everything you could think of. So like the public works budget, uh, which uh, goes for, for road maintenance, that was put in a stranglehold. The police department had just one full-time officer. You know, it's, it's just a little town. They've, they've got their police chief. He, he's the only full-time guy on the payroll. Uh, they cut his budget to the extent that he had to get up at town meeting and say, hey, look, I, I'm sorry, uh, I haven't been able to get out there on patrol because my cruiser is not road safe and I don't have the money in my budget to do the, the repairs. <laughs> the town office, you know, where you have two or three folks working, doing things like keeping the taxes and the town's books and just kind of keeping the town operating, doing dog licenses for people, that sort of thing. That building became so decrepit that, you know, there, there were, it, it was leaky roof. The heat wasn't working. You had uh, ants just kind of like streaming in and out. You know, they, they, <laughs> uh, it was like working in like one of those old Wild West uh, ghost town buildings, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so like, yeah, there, there were all sorts of impacts like that. But then also it was like, you know, the library uh, had to reduce its hours so that during the work week, it was only open on Wednesday mornings from 9 to 12. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, they made a the, – the libertarians put in a proposal that um, they, they shouldn't pay the librarian anymore. And they were told that it was a state law that you can't operate a state library wholly on volunteers – and so they said, well, you know, maybe we could just pay them $1 an hour. Oh there was like a, uh, a proposed tax exemption for uh, blind people, visually impaired people. And they said, no, we, we don't want to give them an exemption because what if a bunch of blind millionaires moved to Grafton to take advantage of that loophole? <laughs> you know, so, so it's just like, yeah, thing after thing. What, what about all the people going to gouge out their eyes for the tax benefit? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so basically, you know, the, yeah, the, the planning board budget was cut by about, uh, 95%. Uh, there was no zoning in Grafton. So, uh, buildings didn't have to conform to basic minimum safety degrees. And one of the big impacts they had was actually more on the physical infrastructure of the town. And that was because a bunch of Freetowners moved to Grafton to, you know, take advantage of this project and to be a part of something uh, that they really believed in. And so they were very unattached people. You know, they, these were folks who, who could pick up and move to a small random town in New Hampshire with no employment prospects at the drop of a hat, you know? So some of them didn't have money. And so uh, they were living in a bunch of odd encampments in the woods, you know, that they would be... Uh, yurts and shipping containers and makeshift cabins and tents and mobile homes and what have you. So all of these these places just kind of started emerging in the woods. And this is where uh, a large proportion of these guys would live with, with sort of like a, a, I don't know, militia is probably too strong of a word, but just like a very, a very isolated male group of men sort of feel to it. 
So, so Matt, in, in the book you stress that libertarians think of themselves as logical and rational. Uh, and you seem to take that self-description at, at face value. But it seems to me that the events that you describe in the book call into question how logical and rational these people are. As a popular saying goes, it's often, often attributed, I think, wrongly to Albert Einstein, but the saying is, is a great saying. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. So, I mean, we got the free town project, now we got the free state project. So after the events in Grafton, have, have the libertarians learned from their mistakes, or, or are they just marketing things different? Are they intent on doing the same thing over, but expecting different results? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a really uh, fun and funny way to put it. So, yeah, on the whole logic thing, it, I do talk in the book a little bit about um, some research that has looked at correlations between partisan influence and different political affiliations. And that research, uh, I, I was uh, perhaps as surprised as, as you were, but it shows pretty uh, definitively that libertarians are more logical than either Democrats or Republicans. And so, you know, you think, boy, well, how can that be? They're saying such bizarre things. And I think, you know, on further reflection, <laughs> what, what I've really come to understand is that people as a whole, maybe if you give us all a, a, a D minus for logic, they might get a D. Uh, you know, like, there's so much research out there, social science and, and neuroscience research that shows that people are just kind of not logical animals, you know, that, that far more often we're using the construct of logic to kind of retroactively justify the position that we wanted to take in the first place. And, you know, if you think of, I don't know, the, the sci-fi trope where you have the robot uh, or artificial intelligence that's been given a directive to like create peace on earth. And then it responds by logicking out an answer that, Oh, we'll just exterminate all life on earth. And then it will be very peaceful. <laughs> you know, right, right, right. Uh, it, it, it's kind of reminiscent of that. And that like, you know, when you take a logic chain uh, and follow it to its rational conclusion, uh, you can, wind up in a place that is logically sound and yet completely indefensible and completely out of lockstep with the rest of the world to the extent that it becomes its own problem. You know, you know uh, Jonathan Swift, the Gulliver's Travels guy, uh, he, he wrote a, a famous satirical essay called A Modest Proposal, where he kind of like very logically tackles the problems of overpopulation and food scarcity in England by suggesting that the poor ought to just simply eat their children, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so logic is an important tool. And I'm sure that you guys uh, as academics uh, have a much deeper understanding and appreciation for the advantages of logic and the ways that we can use logic to parse things that don't, um, come to us naturally, but uh, to, to, to rely over much on logic, you know, sometimes it, logic doesn't account for, doesn't take into account enough, or it doesn't take a broad enough view at a solution, uh, and it can fool us into uh, coming up with the, the wrong answer sometimes. So, and, and then on the question of whether they've learned from their mistakes, you know, I don't know that too many people would say that they have learned from their mistakes. Uh, uh, the libertarians who participated in the Freetown Project, those who were the kind of like uh, diehard believers, they ultimately felt like they were stymied by the political forces and the political realities that they existed in. Uh, you know, that, that you can push for a free society uh, and even if you succeed at the local level, the state is going to come and you know put their their thumb down on you, and therefore the the real problem was not that you were pushing for outlandish ideas and expressions of individual freedom, but that you didn't get to do it enough, you know. And so, by and large, I would say the project did not really teach anybody uh, within the libertarian community that this might be a bad idea. Uh, although perhaps 
people outside the libertarian community who saw it were uh, educated that perhaps, you know, the fact that I that I support gay marriage, which is a longly held libertarian opinion uh, and might cause me to describe myself as libertarian leaning uh, does not translate into I want to live in a place run by libertarians. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. We should talk about the bears, uh, which are the, in the title of your book. I'm assuming that their place in the title of your book is because they're kind of a good symbol of or how how things fell apart in Grafton, which we haven't really got into yet in the conversation. Do you want to maybe explain what the situation with the bears was? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, bears are, are fun to talk about. And what I eventually realized as I was working on this book is that the idea of like bear management, it's not typically all that politicized. You know, like we don't go to our city council and talk to them too much about bear interactions, right? It's, it's just not that partisan or political an issue in most parts of the country, excepting like, you know, the wolves of Yellowstone or the grizzly bears of Yellowstone, that, that sort of thing. And so bears become kind of a, a, a symbol or a battleground in this town. And so the way that it came about was that I've already described how you had a lot of people living in these encampments in the woods and uh, living very freely, living their own independent, uh, free lifestyles. And a component of that free lifestyle was that each one of these individuals and each one of these encampments was storing and managing their food in their own way. And they were each handling their waste disposal you know, how to throw out their garbage in their own way as well. Uh, and so uh, there wasn't kind of like centralized enforced systems that would have 
removed the, this food and food waste out of the environment in a way that would have evolved over time and, and been kind of like a, a proven time-tested opportunity. And so that became a caloric opportunity for the population of bears that was living in the woods in and around Grafton. And so suddenly, what the, from, from the bears' perspective, all these guys living in the woods suddenly were demonstrating that humans could be a source of food. And because each encampment was doing things in its own way, that meant that they were like a little puzzle. You know, every every home became a little puzzle. And if the bear figures out the puzzle, it gets the food. You know, it's, that's literally how you train something to, to do to do a task, right? That's how you train your dog to do a task is you say, hey, if you sit down, I will give you a treat. Uh, and in this case, the bears were learning uh, if you go out and nose through my cabin when I'm not there, I will give you a treat. It's kind of like the same exact thing. So that was one way in which this started to impact the bears. The other way was that as bears started to take note of this and started to invade the town and in greater and more persistent numbers, the Freetowners did not do what you or I would do. Most people, if you've got a problematic bear that's coming to your property multiple times, most people in 2020 would pick up the phone and call Fish and Game or wildlife authorities or state officials and say, hey, I got a problem here. Uh, but that is so antithetical uh, to the basic nature of uh, the libertarian philosophy that they were much more interested in trying to resolve their bear problems on their own. And so what that meant was that they each came up with their own bear deterrent methods. And this was, uh, you know, one guy put cayenne powder on his garbage so that the bear would get a snootful of cayenne. Some people uh, set booby traps for the bears, you know, to, to kind of <laughs> cause them pain. Uh, there were, you know, electric fences. Some people played their radios loud, hoping that the sound of talking would drive them away. Uh, some people threw firecrackers at them. Um, and so uh, this, again, by employing a bunch of non-lethal, not necessarily expert advised uh, responses to the bears, uh, this was also teaching the bears that a lot of human efforts to deter them were not lethal. And if they were endured, they could still solve the puzzle. They could still get the food, right? Uh, and so... This was also inadvertently training, training the bears. And thirdly, uh, you had some libertarians and some, some uh, longtime Grafton residents who just wanted to feed the bears, not unintentionally, but on purpose. Wow. These were folks who wanted to assert their rights. And one of those rights was the right to put food out and sit back and watch <laughs> the bears come in and eat it, just for kind of like the joy of watching them eat. So... All of these things kind of conspired. Wow. Uh, there's a, an emerging uh, field of study called anthrozoology. Uh, and it's basically like anthropology, but the idea is that instead of taking a very human-centric view of things, you look at how different species evolve in a place and how their uh, existence and cultures can impact one another. And so in this case, the human, the change in human culture created a big dramatic change in bear culture, where suddenly you had a lot of bears that were very interested in people. Uh, they were so uh, used to being fed uh, that many of them were not even hibernating in the winter. And that's probably the one thing you know about a bear is that it sleeps all winter. Well, not these bears. What struck me as, as, as really strange and I mean, you explain it uh, in terms of a policy going back to the 1950s, but when people are being attacked by bears, the, the authorities in New Hampshire like, no, there, that was not a bear attack. There is no such thing as a bear <laughs> attack, you know, and, and our motto is Bruin in B-R-U-I-N, Bruin in New Hampshire, you know, it's your problem, live with yeah. it, right? I mean, I, that that to me is like, you, you, you know, in other words, New Hampshire has always been kind of proto-libertarian <laughs> anyway, and that seems rather uh, extreme. It's outrageous, me. and yet at the same time, what are they going to say? Oh yeah, we put the bears there, we're sorry, uh, 
we're sorry you got attacked by our bears. Um, they, they have um, kind of evolved in a system in which all they can do is the, the cheapest thing that deflects blame, right? Or, or that, you know, uh, uh, distorts blame. Clearly, everybody in the state is working hard w within the scopes of, of what they have, and they're all good people and all of that. But when a bear attacks someone, and in, in my book, the, the two folks who are attacked are both women living alone in trailer homes in, you know, kind of vulnerable populations. And in both cases, the state basically said, oh, yeah, well, that's because you had food, uh, a food attractant for the bear. But in neither case was there actually a food attractant for the bear put out by those women. Um, and so it was really a way to kind of rely on the, the answer that is most often correct rather than the answer that is actually applicable to this particular situation. Uh, and, and it was a shame because, you know, the, these women who got attacked were completely blameless. And yet the statements to the press by the state were essentially, yeah, you know, that this person had food out and it attracted a bear. And that prevented those women from uh, perhaps getting the support and sympathy that they deserved from their neighbors, uh, some of whom are, were more culpable for the bear attacks than they were. What's fascinating reminds it feel like you could be describing the libertarian reaction to mask mandates. <laughs> you know, it's it just feels like the, the exact same problem where someone's like so obsessed with the abstract idea of their personal freedom. They want to have the right to like feed a bear or take their mask off whenever they want, but they they just there's no place for that sort of thinking when you had dealing with a public health problem or a wildlife management issue um, where your actions have an effect on a whole ecosystem. Yeah, I definitely see that parallel there. Yeah, it's that idea. Um, we live in a society that has to balance the ideas of individual freedom with the idea of safety and security um, you know, for both the individual and the community as a whole. And by staking out one end of the spectrum so extremely that you can't be not even that you can't be bothered, but that you're you're offended by the idea that you should just put a, a little piece of cloth on your face in certain situations that most of which you can avoid anyway, <laughs> uh, in order to tamp down the spread of something that's killed you know, hundreds of thousands of, of Americans. It's just kind of ludicrous. Um, and the bear thing was you know in a way similar. You know the the connection was perhaps less in their face. Uh, at least from it, it was less reported on. But yeah, clearly the, the connection was there. The title of your book is A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. I'm waiting for the, the punchline. But um, <laughs> the, the title might be taken, taken to suggest that what you're telling is a story of libertarians versus bears. Uh, but in fact, the libertarians did not have the same attitude to the bears. And as you just uh, were, were recounting, the main victims of the bears were not libertarians, but women, you know, who lived in the area beforehand. But when I was reading the book, not only was I struck by the fact that this is not a libertarian versus bear story, I was struck by the similarities between the libertarians and the bears. They were both invaders of, of Grafton. They both wanted an unregulated environment. Uh, they were both intent on doing just what they felt like doing. Uh, neither of them took the needs or the desires of others into consideration. Uh, neither took kindly to pushback, uh, to put it mildly. So my question, Matt, is when you were writing the book, were these parallels intentional on your part, or is this just a case of the facts speaking for themselves? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so basically, um, when I first came to Grafton and started reporting on this story, I was not at all aware of the fact that this was the site of the Freetown project. I was really interested in the bears and why the bears were doing these odd, unusual behaviors and was kind of like looking into it from that perspective. And then slowly I started asking myself the question of why the bears were acting like this and then slowly putting those pieces together and realizing that there was something very unusual happening in the human culture in Grafton. Um, and so I would say largely it's a case of facts speaking for themselves, but it's also kind of 
not coincidental. Those parallels that, that you notice in the book and that I notice in real life are there. It's not a random coincidence. It, it goes back to that idea that human and animal and plant cultures can impact each other. And so if you start messing with the one, you start messing with the other. And the, the bears, uh, they're a great animal in that, number one, they're problem solving so that they actually can kind of shift to, to be an opportunist uh, depending on how the people in their area are acting. But also, yeah, bears are... Uh, they, they are kind of like libertarians. You know, they, they are out for themselves. They, they are kind of trying to figure out what they can do to survive and procreate uh, before they die. And they're not particularly beholden to others. Uh, that being said, there there is like a measure of social responsibility within bear culture, even. Uh, I talk about a bear expert in the book named Ben Killam, and he talks about how bears actually will kind of punish each other for unbecoming behavior, and they can work out kind of adoption schemes where if a mother bear is not able to uh, feed its cub in her territory because of food scarcity, she might convince another bear in a neighboring territory that has more food in it to adopt her cub and, and let that go on. So even the bears are less libertarian than, than the libertarians. It's very funny and, and odd to me to, to see uh, the interactions be between these two groups. It really is uh, 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 unusual. And another thing about bears is that they really occupy an odd place in our mental space. You know, we tend to kind of anthropomorphize bears, but not always in the same way. You know, like, like we always think of bunny rabbits in the same way. They're cute. They're cuddly, you know, uh, they're, they're passive. They're fast. Uh, but bears, we will project almost anything onto, right? We'll, we'll think of bears as cute and cuddly. We'll think of them as very stupid. We'll think of them as very smart. We'll think of them as evil villains from a horror movie. We'll think of them as noble symbols of the wilderness. You know, there, there's almost no trope that you can't heap onto the back of a bear. And uh, and so I, I think that they prove to be a really interesting counterpoint to the libertarians because that, that kind of malleability of what a bear can represent and their propensity for changing their behavior in response to human behavior really made them uniquely sensitive and uniquely able to communicate the message uh, that the libertarians were kind of tampering with the wilderness in a way that was not advisable. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm an economist, as uh, many of our listeners know, and the economics profession has been crawling with libertarians basically forever. Uh, so I understand their ideology, but what I don't understand is them. Uh, for instance, I know the Invisible Hand fairy tale by heart, that when individuals are running around, acting always and only in their personal self-interest, this doesn't lead to chaos, according to the fairy tale, because market exchange magically creates order out of the apparent chaos. But I don't understand the people who believe this. What kind of person takes this fairy tale seriously? And why do they take it seriously? I, I've been up, you know, close to them for a very, very long time, decades, but I just, I, I've never been able to get my head around this. So I'm wondering whether your own up close and personal experience with them, Matt, has given you any insights in, into, into this. Who are they? What makes them tick? What are their motives? That's a good question, and it gives me a chance to say some nice things about libertarians for a change. You know, like I met a lot of libertarians. I spent a lot of time talking to libertarians about their ideals uh, and their ideas. And a lot of them were very, very nice to me and friendly to me and welcomed me into their homes and explained their points of view. And so all of that I appreciated and all of that kind of showed that uh, before we think about the differences between ourselves and libertarians and, and what kind of sets them apart, uh, we can... Uh, take a moment to kind of celebrate what we have in common with them. You know, they, these are people in their community who are often, you know, engaged with the civic world around them, you know, on, on both a local and a, a state and national level. Uh, you know, they're, they're watching Game of Thrones and Gilmore Girls. Uh, they are listening to the same music you're listening to. Uh, and 
like you, they want to make the world a better place, you know, for their uh, kids and for future generations. Um, so, like, there, there's a lot of common ground there. Uh, but where they really, really differ is at the margins. You know, we, we think that when we look, look at the spectrum, a uh, progressive will emphasize safety and security, and a libertarian will emphasize freedom and personal responsibility. And so from their perspective, we're the people who are saying like, well, we're not going to be happy until the world is so safe that everybody lives in a literal box and it's just kind of like piped in food, you know, that that will have no no opportunity to live a life at all because uh, we, we've become so focused on keeping people safe. And that is, you know, something that we all ought to guard ourselves against. Personal freedom is important. And I want somebody who cares passionately about individual freedoms to be a part of the ongoing American debate about where we want to land as a society. Uh, but the real problem is that they kind of fetishize the free market. As you said, you know, they any any problem you want to come up with, uh, they will explain to you in a theoretical, not real, but theoretical manner as to how the free market will sort that problem out. And it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You know, like I, I have a favorite tool. My, my favorite tool is my garden hose and I just use it to water my garden and occasionally fill a bucket or something like that. Their favorite tool is the free market and it just solves everything to them. You know, if I break my arm, I'm not going to wrap my garden hose around it. Uh, I'm going to go to a different tool, uh, one in a hospital wielded by a doctor. <laughs> but they think that the free market is really going to uh, solve everything. And it's a just kind of a huge lack of judgment, I, I think, or kind of like a willful misunderstanding of reality uh, that supports some of the more personal values that they celebrate. You know, I, I think a lot of libertarians are drawn to this idea in the same way that I think I see on the progressive side. I see people who are, they really feel good about themselves by being judgmental about somebody else. You know, if, if you point out somebody else's uh, ignorant remark and call them uh, a bigot, that you perhaps then feel better about yourself because you're so anti-bigot that you outed somebody else's bigoted remark and we, we get a little holier than thou about that. I think on the other side, they are finding the same thing. You know, it's kind of like a race towards extremism where they want to show how individual and free they can be. You know, they, they have this kind of masculine fantasy about what life was like in the frontier days when an individual would go out and solve all of their own problems and would, uh, if a bear showed up on their doorstep, not call the state, but they would go out and handle it themselves, you know, like a, a strong individual person. And they believe that over time, uh, if society continues along those lines, that you will wind up with a be better, hardier, stronger class of people uh, who, who will you know, be more self-reliant and be better able to take care of themselves. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different philosophy. And I think it does have a lot of appealing components to it. But the really important thing to remember is that when you try to remove uh, those collective action, government-oriented solutions from a place, that place just inevitably goes to shit. You know, one of the uh, guys that I interviewed in the book who described himself as like an anarcho-communist, he said, if you take corporations and money out of government, you get pure public representation. If you take government out of uh, corporations, you get slavery, you know? <laughs> and uh, I think that's right. You know, I, I think they, they get so focused on the impositions of state authority uh, which is the only place where they have a vote, that they really are blinded to the, what to me are much more frightening impositions of global corporations and American corporations that are invading our lives and our freedoms in so much more insidious and villainous ways. 
that I, you know, it's almost as if because we have some little measure of control over government, we want to beat up government all day instead of really worrying about the, the people that we don't have any control over. Yeah, let me let me just say I, I don't I don't buy uh, the whole line that these people are more interested in freedom, you know, than the rest of us. And I don't I don't buy the line necessarily, although it's true in some cases that progressives care more about safety and security than about freedom. I, I don't accept the counterposition of the two. For instance, when you take the case that you you, you just gave of, 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 of prostitution, I, I think that there's a real problem in the way that libertarians conceptualize freedom. I think they've got a distorted, narrow, formalistic, unworkable, etc. conceptualization of freedom. And it's not like they care more about freedom. You know, if, if somebody is put in a position where to survive, they've got no other means and they have to sell their body okay to me that is not a free situation and no matter how many times you say that there's a voluntary contract that's just formalistic it's not real you know and when the, we, we take broader groups of people you you look at the the entire proletariat the entire working class of modern societies these are people who have no means by which to make a living without selling their ability to work okay that's not freedom I mean and this was taken away I mean their, their land was taken away from them uh, when when the whole system got started you know for years I've been trying to get libertarians to address the situation and they just duck and duck and duck so I mean my, my own we're, we're you know we're Marxist humanists this is a Marxist humanist podcast and Marxist humanists you know we, we, we stand for freedom so I I just want to say I don't want to like give over the ground of freedom to the libertarians I want to say that you know what they call freedom it, it, it's really fundamentally a very narrow formalistic legalistic conceptualization of freedom and I, I think the the, the Take, take the mask mandate that, that, or mask mandates that you guys were talking about. How is somebody freer by having a, a whole group of people who refuse to wear masks and refuse to wear, uh, refuse to get vaccinated running around, you know, their country and, and, and endangering them? How, how is one made freer by that? So it seems to me we need to have a real discussion about what freedom is. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an excellent, excellent point. And really, like, they are talking about freedom, I think, specifically from government. You know, it's almost as if they would sanction literal, literal slavery as long as the government was not the slaver. <laughs> you know, uh, and it's... Um... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's it, it's true, it's true, um, and yeah, they they they're they're so focused on on the government, and perhaps you know, like when you're, you know, identifying the government as the only impinger on freedoms that matter, then it starts to to absorb a certain amount of, yeah, maybe that's what makes it make sense to them. Yeah, there's a, a an example in the book of how once the bears have kind of run wild and the government has been sent packing, the people in a one of those encampments called Tent City, they actually respond to the bear problem by building a little wall around uh, a, a grouping of cabins. And I thought that that was such a kind of a perfect distillation of what you're talking about, was that their efforts to be free from government had been so successful that they were walling themselves into this little crappy space in the woods to protect themselves from bears, right? Like, I guess that that's like the metaphor in the book is like, uh, you know, they didn't want to be free from the bears. They only wanted to be free from the government. And as a result, their lives were made much, much, much less free by the bears. Yeah, it's a shame they couldn't voluntarily contract with the bears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Matthew. And... People can get your book uh, on Amazon. It's hardback. It's Kindle. You've got an audio version. 
paperback is out about to come out uh come out this september it's on its way with an all-new chapter about uh the freetowners uh secessionist <laughs> drive well thanks so much this has been a great conversation so thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today uh yeah no i, I had uh so much fun you you guys have asked such insightful questions and really got me thinking about some of these issues uh, in ways that I had not before. So I really appreciate both this specific discussion and uh, the, the important voice that you guys bring to the broader conversation. Uh, it's really, really good to know that people are out there like, uh, yeah, th thinking about these issues and the ways that you guys think about them. So thank you. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 